to our Sunday school. Hopefully everybody's doing well. So, I guess only a couple people are doing okay. <laughs> so, <clears throat> you, well, you could always uh, have uh, wonderful health issues that require you to have multiple CT scans and stuff like that. And I was telling a couple of people what I mentioned to one of the radiation techs the other day. As I was going in for another test, I said, I am surprised with the amount of radiation I've received over the last, you know, less than a year uh, that I do not have some sort of superpower yet. So, <clears throat> as you know, that's how it always works, you know, in the comic books, right? You know, they're exposed to something, and rather than killing them, it gives them some sort of superpower. Um, yeah, that hasn't happened yet. So, let's go ahead and turn to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 2, Colossians chapter 2. And, uh, we've been, uh, obviously working in this, uh, uh, this book for a bit now. And, uh, um, obviously I had to take a little bit of a break because of, well, I wasn't here. Um, but, uh, we're, we're back at it and, uh, we're looking specifically, uh, in chapter two. And we looked at the four warnings, uh, that were given in this passage, four warnings. And, uh, what we've been going through is taking a look at those, uh, Verses in between the warning, and we talked a, a bit about uh, some of the deceit and things that go on, uh, and uh, what happens and uh, what can uh, occur. But uh, I want us to pick up uh, right there with verse 8, and it says here, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead, and you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of the ordinances that was contrary against, or that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Let's go ahead and pray real quick. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you again for our time that we can uh, begin to study this, these passages. Lord, I pray you just be with my mouth and my mind that uh, the words that are spoken are uh, pleasing and honoring unto you and are according to what your will is. Pray, Lord, that our hearts would be open and receptive to understanding this principal, or excuse me, this principle of, uh, you being, uh, the preeminent one that, uh, you need to be in every area of our life and first in every area. And Lord, I just pray that we would, uh, understand that concept as we look at what you've done for us and why that is the case. Thank you again, Lord, for those that are here. Pray this time would be honoring unto you. And this I ask in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. So what we find here in this passage is probably one of the most, uh, if you will, distinct descriptions of what Christ's um, sacrifice did, uh, what he specifically was doing, um, and what occurred with his uh, um, with his. Uh, 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 his uh, his crucifixion with his resurrection with all of that. So what we find here in this passage is we find that very specifically we find what he what he conquered, what what victory was wrought through all of that. And again, when somebody you know brings about victory, that person is usually put up at the top. You know, as an example, as David uh, slew Goliath. And as others wound up, uh, um, you know, uh, gaining notoriety and uh, stature and so on and so forth in various different areas of uh, of uh, um, uh, of uh, 
of life and so on and so forth throughout the scripture, we see them coming up to this point of notoriety where people began to respect them more or look up to them more. You know, as it said, they were singing songs about Saul and David and, and Saul slaying his thousands and David his ten thousands and, and, and again, putting them up there as a, if you will, a higher esteemed one. And what we find here is that through this victory that Christ has has wrought, we have or should have that mentality of Christ is greater. Christ is greater. I mean, if you were to put two people together and have them fight, and uh, uh, and again, you know, there's 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 all sorts of things that people will do, and they'll sit there and have these. Uh, uh, needless debates, guys are really bad at doing it. And they're like, okay, so if this person fought this person, who would win? You know, they would say stuff like Mike Tyson and Evander Holyfield. They put them together or George Foreman and uh, Mike Tyson and so on and so forth. And they try to figure out who's going to beat who. And they would analyze their fighting styles and analyze this and analyze that. And like taking, uh, you know, two of the best, uh, football teams together and, um, having them, you know, put them up together and who's going to be the best or having two racers go against each other. Who's going to be the best? That type of mentality. And, and again, it, you know, setting aside anything that could possibly go wrong, it comes down to the ability and the power that's there. The ability and the power that's there. And, you know, uh, it, w- when we, Sorry, I feel like I'm going to sneeze. I keep feeling like I'm going to sneeze. And I'm, I'm desperately trying to, you know, either let it out or, you know, keep it in. And it's, it's not working. One, one of the two things is going to happen. So we'll see what happens here. But, uh, um, but when we start talking about that victory, we're looking at their ability and their power. Their ability and their power. You put a, you know, a 1970-something Yugo against a Dodge Charger, um, it's, you know, modified with the scat pack and everything else that's on there, and the thing's got, uh, you know, a Hemi engine, and it's got a turbocharged, supercharged, I mean, everything about it. Which one's going to win? Put them in a drag race. That's evident. That's evident. That Yugo doesn't even stand a chance. Why? Because it doesn't have the ability to do that. He doesn't have the power to do that. You put your, your, you put your foot on the gas, you're liable to put your foot through the floorboard on that thing. And if you remember those things, they were pieces of trash and just, you know, what, what, one minor fender bender in the car was told. I mean, it was ridiculous. But you, you, you realize that it comes down to the ability and the power. That other car's got tons of power versus that little Yugo. And again, you compare and you're looking for something that's stronger. And when we realize that sin itself is weak, sin has to siphon power off of something else. Sin has to siphon power off of the law in order to be strong. But yet it has such dominance in our life because it shows exactly how weak we are and why we need Christ, why we need the power of his resurrection. Why we need his victory that he wrought. And these, again, are the mentalities that we need to have. Because if we don't have that mentality, then what's going to happen? We are going to be spoiled through philosophy and vain deceit. It's a mind game. It's a mind game. It's not about physical strength. It's not about physical strength. It's about what goes on in the mind of your heart. What your affections are set upon, what you seek after, what you desire, what's the most important thing, if you will, in your life. And the most important should be Jesus Christ, that preeminent, and we find it throughout these passages that we just read, uh, verse 8 through verse 15. Well, let's take a look a little bit at this a little bit further, um, and we see in verse 8 that, that you know, that people are being deceived because it's not after Christ. It's not going after Christ. And again, when we take a look at what we do in a day-to-day basis, we have to ask that question. Does this please my Savior? Will this bring glory, honor, and praise to my Savior? Am I seeking 
to follow his footsteps? Am I walking with him in my day-to-day life? Is this going to be something that he will be ashamed of or something he would look at and approve of? Because we have to, we have to be engaged in that mentality. If we're not, then Christ isn't preeminent. He's not the first thing. People start going through a crisis. People start going through uh, problems or difficulties in their life. And the first thing they do is they freak out. And the reason people freak out is because Christ is not the first stop. Christ is not the first stop. If Jesus Christ can bring victory, and as it says here, spoil principalities and powers, and we keep that in mind, then nothing is going to spoil us. When it comes to, 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 to false doctrines, to traditions of men. So we see that it starts off with Christ. If it's not after Christ, it not even, it shouldn't enter into our mind. It shouldn't enter into our mind. It needs to be brought into captivity and put away. It's, it's just as simple as that. And while, you know, that may sound, if you will, to a, be, to a degree a bit dismissive, we have to practice that. We have to practice that on a day-to-day basis. A thought comes up, don't entertain it. Just don't entertain it. You're like, well, that's, that's easier said than done. Well, you're not doing it in Christ then because you don't have the power to do it. It's his power. It's his grace. My grace is sufficient for thee, is what he says. Paul's in crisis. He's got, he's got something he doesn't want going on in his life. And God says, my grace is sufficient. Why are you worrying about that when my grace is going to cover everything you need? And we begin to realize that that's God's directive in our life. To focus on those things. Because we see in verse 9, he begins to bring that focus into view. Because it says, in him, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. I love this verse. Why? Because this goes right back over to 1 John chapter 5. This relates right back to that, those passages. And, and, and talking about who he is. This goes right back to where, you know, in Romans, it talks about uh, that, uh, that the, the things of creation reveal the Godhead. And I'm like, that's a pretty amazing thing to think about. So here he is talking about this, and he's saying, in him, in Christ, dwelleth the fullness of the Godhead bodily. When's the last time you meditated on that verse? When's the last time you sat down and thought about in Christ bodily, the Godhead existed. It was in him. Go over to First John chapter 5. I know we're kind of going through First John on Sunday evening, but, but uh, we're, it'll be a while before we get to chapter 5. So, But First John chapter 5. First John chapter 5. Got to be a little bit careful about this verse because sometimes people say, well, this verse isn't supposed to be in the Bible. Um, well, it's there. Um, some, some people are going to put a footnote and say, well, this didn't appear in the originals. And, uh, okay, I get that. But this verse is pretty important. I don't know why we'd want to remove it because it shows one of the greatest principles that has ever existed. And it says in verse 7, For the three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Down in the bottom, in the next next verse, it says that they agree in one, but we're not, I mean, we can have three people. I can take Bob and Dennis and Mike, and we can, I can, those three guys can agree on one thing, right? They can agree that the Dallas Cowboys are the best football team that's ever existed. <laughs> they're probably not going to agree on that. I don't know if they're football. I mean, I know I know Mike's a football fan. <laughs> I don't know about Dennis and Bob, but, you know. 
but uh, um, you know, we, we can find some agreement on something, right? You know, we, we can we can find agreement one amongst each other. That doesn't mean they're one. Oh, Mike, Bob, and Dennis are all three separate individuals. I mean, I could try to shove them in a box all together and see what happens and mix it up, shake it up, blend it up, see what comes out. But, you know, it's just not possible. But with Jesus Christ, he says here, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, these three are one. And in Christ dwelled that entire Godhead bodily. In the flesh. And again, that begins to just kind of blow our mind when we begin to think about he would come and put himself in that body of flesh to be limited the way that we are limited. That's an amazing thing to think about. That's a concept that I have a hard time beginning to understand. Because there's nothing like that in creation. And people always talk about, well, we can go to the egg. Uh, the egg has more than three parts. No, it's only, no, there's more. There's more than three parts to that egg. I could name five right off the top. Well, you've got the, the shell and the white and the yolk. Yeah, but then you've got that little white thing that's connected to the yolk itself that's kind of like hangs there and you're like, so there's another part. And then when you take a look at the shell itself, you ever notice how the shell, when it breaks, it still stays together because there's a film on the inside? So now we got five parts. For an art project one time, I needed to make a, a, a an eggshell, and, and I wanted it to make sure that it wasn't going to rot, so I had to actually peel that film off the inside of an eggshell. You ever do that before? Talk about time-consuming. Um, but, you know, all for the sake of art, Right. But, uh, but you, 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 there's more than those type of parts. People say, well, well, the, well, the body, the, the human, you know, they're like that because we have a body, soul, and spirit. Yeah, but they, they, they may all be in us, but they are really separate, aren't they? And that's what he begins to talk about here. He talks about this process. So the human body is created with body, soul, and spirit. And that body, soul, and spirit each has, you know, distinct purposes. Each has distinct things that happen with each one. But we're not, we're not three separate. Your body, your soul, and your spirit, well, they're all you. But you're not a trinity. You're called what's triune. There is nothing like God. If there was another trinity that existed, it would be God. But there is none like him. So we we have a hard time fathoming that. And as people try to explain it, it just becomes more and more confusing. And at some point in time, you just simply have to say, I'm going to believe that by faith. I have to believe that by faith. Because again, how do we how do we how do we wrap our physical minds around that concept when there's nothing around it to compare it to? Because that's how we look at things in life, is we try to compare it to something. But all of that is dwelling in him. All of that is dwelling in him. And when we realize that, we realize that that is the entire power of God in him, in Jesus Christ. And he then begins to, Paul then begins to move, he says, I want you to keep this, keep this in mind. That if you're focusing Christ and you're focusing on the fact that in him is the entire Godhead, all that power, all that ability, all that might, all that greatness, all that God is, in verse 10, he says, this is how we become complete. It says in verse 10, and you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. So right there in chapter 2, in verse 10, we find that Mankind without God is incomplete. Mankind without God is incomplete. People that live this life without God in their life are living an incomplete life. 
They're living an incomplete life. God's purpose and what he's done is he clearly states is that he's not willing any should perish, but all should come to repentance. He wants you to spend eternity with him. He wants to have a relationship with you. He, he wants all of those things. But what we find here is that, is that we're complete in him. Now, this is important for the believer to understand. Because if we try to do something without God, we're doing it incompletely. We're doing it incompletely. And when we find something that is incomplete, we often want to try to complete it. We want to put something else in there. And I will tell you this, anything of this world that you put in there will not fill and will not be able to complete you the way that Christ can complete you. He said he is, he, 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 you know, what he does is he gives his, gives life more abundant. There's life and people live lives. People can live a life without Jesus Christ. But again, it's an incomplete life. They can live that life and, and, and you know what end, winds up happening? In the end, they're going to realize that it was just not enough. It's just not enough. And in this, sometimes in this physical life, they realize it's not enough. There are people that will go through and they will find everything that they can try to find. The book of Ecclesiastes is about that. Solomon goes through and he find, he tries to find wisdom of, of the world, not necessarily wisdom of God, but all the wisdom and all of this stuff and trying to know all of this scientific things and things like that. And in the end, it's just not enough. He goes about and collects all these riches. He lives a, you know, a happy and, and pleasing life where he's having parties all the time. Doesn't have to worry about work. Doesn't have to worry about finances. And you know what he says? It's not enough. As a matter of fact, the words he uses, he says it's vanity. Jesus Christ even says that if a man gains the whole world and loses his own soul, it's not enough. If you had everything in this world and the world belonged to you and you had world domination, like some sort of weird, you know, supervillain, and, 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 and you know what winds up happening? It's not enough. It's not enough. Once a person gets a little taste of power, they want more. They want more, and they want more, and they want more, and they want more. And it's it's addictive. It's addictive. And what God is saying here is he's saying, look, you, you, you want to live the complete life. You want to live a life that is pleasing unto him. You want to live that type of life. He says, you need to live in him. It needs to be focused on Christ because in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. All those parts, the will of God, the salvation of God, the teaching and the guidance and the comfort of God, all of those things that each part has, it has demonstrated, all of that which is necessary for this life completes us. Get the fast car, it's not going to complete you. Get a home, it's not going to complete you. Get your dream job, it's not going to complete you. Find a spouse that really loves and cares for you, it's not going to complete you. Grow a family with children and live long life, it's not going to complete you. What completes you is Christ, because it says here, which is the head of all principality and power. I don't care what uh, what other thing you shove into that hole, it is not powerful enough to complete you. Right. And, 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 and God makes this very, very, very clear here. That there is no other fullness in him. That there is nothing else that is going to uh, bring about any type of power in your life. Like Jesus Christ. No self-help, no Dave Ramsey, none of that. Christ and Christ alone. He's the preeminent.
Because in verse 11, he starts talking about, he says, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. He starts talking about a cutting away of something. Cutting away of something. So I want you to think about this. Go over to Romans, uh, Romans chapter, uh, ooh, let's see here. Where do I want to start? Uh, let's go over to Romans chapter 7. You know how in um, Ephesians chapter 2 and in verse, uh, I believe it's verse 1, he talks about you're dead in your trespasses and sins, right? You're dead in your trespasses and sins. Paul talks about this, the same thing here with the Romans, um, and he, he starts talking about uh, uh, what sin does in, in, you know, in, in contrast to what the law does. And he says in verse 7, what shall I say then is the law sin? God forbid. He's saying that the law was fulfilled in Christ and he has completed that and he has made the payment that was necessary to fulfill all parts of the law. Okay. That was for us. That was completed on the cross. And he's saying here that, you know, well, do we just abandon the law and then we just go ahead and live our lives the way we're supposed to, or excuse me, the way that we want to. Versus the way we're supposed to under God's will. No, he says over in verse six, you know, in verse one, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. So here we've got another God forbid. That's a good study, by the way, to look up the words God forbid. But here's two things he forbids. He forbids you to continue to sin in your life. Do we then just declare that, uh, that the law is, is something that we don't need to follow and that the law, if we, if we, if we do things of the law that, that, uh, uh, that, uh, you know, that it's going to be sinful for us? And he's saying no. He's saying God forbids that. He says, nay, I had not known sin, but by the law, for I had not known lust, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. So over in the book of Galatians, he talks about this with the, the Galatians because they're wanting to keep all points of the law to keep their salvation and to be saved up to, you know, including circumcision and all of the laws and the feasts and everything else. Because Judaizers came in and said, well, in order to, in order to be a Christian, in order to have that eternal life, you still have to do the things of the Jewish law. And Paul says, no, you don't. No, you don't. But what he's saying here is he's saying what the law does for us. And he tells them over in the book of Galatians, he says it's a schoolmaster. What's a schoolmaster? It's a teacher. Schoolmaster is a teacher and he's going to show us what's right and what's wrong. Just like what the Levites were supposed to do. They were supposed to teach the people what was holy and what was unholy and what was uh, uh, clean and what was unclean. So somebody comes up and they bring a big giant lizard and they're holding it by the tail. And they walk up and they say, is this okay to eat? And he goes, no. Somebody walks up with a little piglet and says, can I make this into bacon? And they go, no. Brings up a cow. Can I eat this? Yes. Can make ribs with it. Barbecue ribs. <laughs> Hamburgers. Be- yeah, brisket. Smoked brisket. It just falls apart when you touch it. Oh, sorry. <laughs> but, I mean, you're supposed to teach those things, Right? Supposed to teach what's clean and unclean, what's holy, what's unholy. And here very clearly he's saying the things in the Old Testament, we can find out what's holy and what's unholy really quickly. Why? Because God shows the consequences. You ever notice that over in the Old Testament? God shows somebody doing something wrong and then he shows the consequences of it. And then he shows somebody doing something that's right and he shows the consequences of it. Praise the Lord for that. That's a great teacher. That's a great teacher. Should, should I and have 700 wives and who knows how many concubines? It didn't end well for Solomon. So, shouldn't do it here. Shouldn't do it in this life. But what we find is, we see that it teaches. He says, I hadn't known what sin was until the law said, you are breaking it. He hadn't known that. He says, because look at verse 7, he said, for I had not known lust. He had no idea what that meant, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. 
I can just see little Saul there getting all, but, but I want that. And his mom teaching him, no, you shouldn't covet because the Bible says thou shalt not covet as part of the Ten Commandments. What is coveting? And she explains it. But I want it. And she says, now you're lusting. And Paul realized exactly right then and there that he had just violated the, <laughs> the principles and the, the laws of God. And it says right here in verse 8, what happens when that occurred, when he had desired those things, but sin taking occasion by the commandment wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, for without the law, uh, uh, without the law, sin was dead, meaning that it didn't have any effect on him. Why? Because he had no concept. Um, uh, my wife has a, a family friend, and uh, how old is Mikey now? He's in his 40s. He's, he's, he's way up there. He has the mindset. Yeah. Hey, hey, I'm 49. I'm going to be turning 50. I can say that. Give that to me. Okay, once you pass 20, it's all downhill. Can I get an amen on that? Once you hit 30, the speed picks up and the slope becomes a lot steeper. When you get to 40, it's basically a sheer cliff drop right to the bottom. <laughs> yeah, some of us, you're like, I want to go back to 40. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you know, to me, I'm sitting there thinking, okay, well, maybe when I'm 50, they will have uh, fixed me and I'll be like the million dollar man or whatever that show was where, you know, yeah, the bionic man. Is that what he was? I can't remember. Six million dollar man. All I remember is it was one of the most ridiculous things I think I'd ever seen. But anyways, I had the, I had the action figures from him, but, uh, when I was younger, I showed you how old I am. Uh, but, but that, that being said, I mean, you know, look, we, we, we realize that, that, you know, as we get older, we have more health problems. This is why we, we, we want that redemption of the body. I guess I get to that. But uh, Mikey is—he's uh, in his forties, and um, he has the mental capacity of uh, not even a two-year-old. I've known two-year-olds that are more articulate than him. He can't speak. He just grunts and screams. He can, he can barely control his body. It's a fight. Um, I look into his eyes, and 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 it's almost like you can see that there's very little going on behind him. He has, he has, he's severely disabled. He's severely disabled. And, you know, he drools constantly, things of that nature. He doesn't have any concept of what sin is. No concept. And he'll do stuff. He likes to take glasses off of people's face. So he'll get his shaky hand and he'll, you, you, you have to watch him because he's quick. And he just like reaches out and grabs your glasses, but you know, and he's strong. Oh, he is, he's strong. And he'll grab those glasses and he'll crush them. But he'll try to grab your glasses or he'll grab women's hair and pull. And he doesn't, he doesn't know. He just is like, ah, no concept, no concept. You know, sin's dead to him. I could sit there and tell him the plan of salvation. I could go through the Ten Commandments. And he he's going to have like... He's not even going to sit for that. He'll get up and walk away. And here here's Paul saying that, that, that there was a point in time where that wasn't occurring. I mean, sin didn't even have that you know impression in his life. And then it comes along and, and what happens? The law showed him, hey, you sinned. You sinned. And what happened in verse 9? It says, For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. What did sin do? It killed him. What did sin do in the garden? It killed them. What does sin do in your life? It kills you. So we begin to realize that there's something that's dead. 
What do you do with stuff that's dead on your body? If all of a sudden one day there was a circulatory problem in your your leg and uh, your lower left leg, you look at it and it's all black. And you're looking at it and the skin starts cracking open and things start happening and you're like, there's all sorts of infection and you're like, what's going on? You go to the doctor and the doctor's like, well, why did you wait? Um, but he looks at it and he goes, there's no circulation. There's no blood to it. He said, essentially the, the, the bottom part, you know, your, your, your entire lower leg is dead. It's dead. What are they going to do? Are they going to keep that on your body? They cut it off. They cut it off. So what we find is, if you're going back over to Colossians, we find that God performs this circumcision when we trust Christ as our Savior. You know what he cuts away? He cuts away that body of the flesh, as he says here. He cuts away the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. This flesh, yeah, it's got some stuff. It's got some problems. It's got some desires of its own, it seems like. All these things that, that we talk about, the carnality behind it, this body is not meant to last forever. It was designed to, but in our current environment and current conditions of a cursed earth, it won't. It won't. And the end result is, is what does he do? He cuts it away. He cuts it away from us. So when we trust Christ as our Savior, he performs an operation inside us where the Word of God comes and cuts that all away around us, separates it, and our and our, our our soul is affixed to our spirit so that when we pass, it doesn't kill us and we go to a second death. And we find here that he says that this is necessary for us, for our salvation. Now, only God can do that. You can have the greatest uh, surgeon in the world. They can't separate your body from your soul and spirit. Why? Because they can't see your soul and they can't see your spirit. They can't see those things. Only Christ can do that, the great physician. He says, you are circumcised, in whom also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, the putting off of the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. If you don't put off the body of sins of the flesh, you will die in your sins and you will perish in a devil's hell and a lake of fire. That's what God makes very clear in Scripture. Which is why we need Christ. Which is why we need forgiveness of sins. Why? Because God doesn't want us to do that. It's not his desire. And only Christ can do that. Only Christ can do that. It says buried with him in baptism. This isn't a, this isn't a water baptism that he's talking about here. In verse 12. Now you gotta keep this in mind. There's seven different baptisms in scripture, okay? There's a, there's a baptism that the uh, entire congregation of the nation of Israel, when they passed through the Red Sea, they were baptized, as, as he says. Now, did they get wet? Not a, no. He said they passed on dry ground. They went through the middle of a sea, and they did not get wet. So not all baptism is water. So we find that. There's a baptism of fire. You don't want that one. That's reserved for the nation of Israel. They got to be purged. The dead stuff has to be, you know, pruned and thrown away and burned. God makes that very clear that He's He's got that reserved for them. You have people walking around saying, "Well, oh, I was baptized baptized by fire because." And, and they start pointing to Pentecost, and I'm like, that, no, no, no. <laughs> it's not the same thing. It's not the same thing. But he makes it, you know, God makes it very clear, baptism by fire, and he starts talking about that, and then he starts going into the stuff of the tribulation period. That's some pretty intense stuff reserved for Israel. Yeah. But he's got to purge him. He's got to purge him. 
There's, I mean, there's other baptisms that we find out there. There's water baptism, which is, you know, a sign for, you know, which is something that believers do to say, hey, hey, I've trusted Christ as my Savior. It's a first act of obedience. And what we find with this passage is we're talking about being baptized in him, and we're talking about that baptism that he talks about in Ephesians where we're put in him. And it involves no water again. It involves no water. There's only one that involves water. Because the word baptism doesn't mean water. It means to be placed in something. And we are being placed in him. So we are baptized by the Holy Spirit into Christ when you trust Christ as your Savior. You are in him. And nobody, nobody, not even yourself, can pull you out. Praise God for it. Now, you can really mess up and distance yourself and do some really dumb things. But praise God, you're not unsaved. Praise God, you didn't lose it. Um, I, I heard a sermon the other day, and uh, this preacher was talking about something, and he was talking about John Wesley, and, and uh, John Wesley was, uh, was an interesting character. Um, Charles Wesley wrote quite a few hymns in our hymn book. Um, some that are, I mean, like, and can it be things like that. Good, good, good hymns, good hymns. But his brother John was a little bit more of a complex character. Uh, you know, John Wesley, who, who, who preached great sermons and had preached great revivals. You realize he had a lot of difficulty at home with his home life. His wife, Molly was one of the most, uh, abusive people that you ever heard in your entire life. I'm talking domestic violence. I'm talking about emotional and physical, mental abuse. One time, one of uh, John Wesley's friends, and he wrote this down, it's documented, he saw it with his own eyes, came over to John Wesley's house and found Molly dragging John through the house by his hair. That's how abusive his wife was. His wife would go to his his uh, um, uh, uh, his uh, revival meetings and would just stand out there and yout, shout and yell that he was an adulterer, which he wasn't. She would do everything to cause that ministry to try to fail. Aren't you glad you don't have a spouse like that? This pastor said said this. He said, I wouldn't have put up with that dragging around by the hair. He said, I would have just, you know, you know, smacked her or something like that. And I'm not saying that domestic violence is in any way, shape, or form ever, ever condoned. Uh, I actually have a big deal with that. That shouldn't happen. should never occur. Um, but, uh, you know, he, he's like, you know, defend yourself, man. Well, John Wesley never defended himself against his wife because he was afraid that he would lose his salvation if he ever hit her. Aren't you glad you don't live in that fear? Amen. Aren't you glad that you have the promise that God will never leave you nor forsake you? Aren't you glad you have the promise that nobody shall be able to pluck you out of his hand? If that's the case, then God doesn't have power at all. Man alive. God, God has this power that he's, he, he's, he's done all of this for you. He's got the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He's performed an operation that nobody else can perform to cut away those sins. He's greater than all the principalities that are existing out there in any power of authority that ever rises up. He, he's put you in him and nobody's ever going to be able to pluck you out. Praise God for that. He says in verse 12, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. So you were dead in your trespasses and sins once. Now you are alive in Jesus Christ. You are that new creature. You are born again as we use those phrases. All of those things we realize, you've now got a new life in him that he purchased with his shed blood upon the cross because of the power of his resurrection, because he rose again, and you now are alive again. No longer tied to that dead body of flesh that you were dragging around like some sort of carcass. This is important for the for the believer to understand because we use that as a judge, if you will, as a discerner 
in our life when somebody starts trying to drag us down the path of a false doctrine and drag us again unto a yoke of bondage of the flesh or try to drag us into something that we ought not be, we can sit there and say, okay, well, does this match with what God's power is? Where's the power come from? Where does the power come from? It's a big debate right now because there's this huge push for electric cars, right? Now, look, I have an electric car just because uh, I am a little bit of a rebel and I did not want to pay Jay Inslee's gas tax anymore. I was just, you know, I was just done with it. And I only live 1.6 miles away and uh, Rose Hours is two miles away and they're putting in a Costco. Man alive, what do I need to spend money on gas for? Energy rates are so cheap in the state of Washington. We're one of the cheapest. The cheapest now? Oh, praise God for it. Man, I love it. I don't have to pay gas. Granted, I have things that I'm limited in range to about 100 miles. But that's fine. Everything I got is within 100 miles. And there's free chargers everywhere that I can take advantage of. Just about every single Walgreens has a free charger. And roll up to a Walgreens and charge for 45 minutes and be on my merry little way. Motoring down the road in complete total silence. When you're by yourself. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and you're just cruising. And, it, and it's nice. I like it. I love it. But, you know, it's not, it's not for everybody. I would not, you know, condone everybody get an electric car and stuff, and I would never mandate it. But, now, hey, they're mandating it. And everybody's like, well, you got to know that, that electric cars, it's not just like some magic box that you plug that thing into, and all of a sudden that power just goes into your car. It's got to come from somewhere. Well, it's got to come from where? It's got to come from coal, hydro, nuclear, steam, wind, Solar, ah, you know, stuff like that. And they're like, well, we, we need, we need, we need more wind farms. Well, they kill birds by the thousands. Well, we need solar. You ever drive over east where there's a, there's a big solar field and there are signs that say, be careful. You might get, you know, solar refracting, you know, reflecting back at you. And it will blind you. You ever, ever have one of those cars in a sunny day and you're driving behind it and they decided they were going to chrome the entire back of their car? <laughs> and you're driving and you're like, ah, you're praying to God that you don't rear end them because you can't see anything. Even through their sunglasses, it's piercing. But I mean, all of those things, power's got to come from somewhere. What power are you using in your in your life day to day basis? How do you live this Christian life? Well, it comes from God, and again, He He's He's risen us, so we've got we realize that that He's got the power to raise us from the dead. He had power to raise Himself from the dead. No one else did that. Lazarus didn't do it. Widow's son didn't do that. There were men of God that came and they did those things and raised people from the dead and Peter and Paul and uh, Elijah and Elisha and so on and so forth. Some 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 great men of God that did those uh, uh, those mighty miracles. But I guarantee you, they will not attribute it to themselves. They will attribute it all to the power of God. But none of those people ever raised themselves from the dead. Only Christ had that power. Only Christ did. So he can raise us from the dead when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And all of this is to get us into the mindset of who is Christ in our life? Is he that principality? Is he that power? Is he the preeminent? And we go down a little bit, you know, as we're, and I'm getting ready to close here. But we, we see what he did in verse 13, and you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision in your flesh, has he quickened together, made, they made alive with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. This is why forgiveness of sins is so important in salvation. You cannot ignore it. You cannot ignore it. Why? Because this is that quickening. This is why he's first. 
No one else can forgive sins. Even the Pharisees were like, no one can forgive sins. Why did he say your sins be forgiven of you, be forgiven you? They're like, nobody can do that except God. And very clearly, it was evidence that Jesus Christ is God. And we see here, he says, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances. And this is what happens with that forgiveness of sins. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was contrary to us, or excuse me, that was against us, contrary to us, took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. And what he does, those sins that you've committed, he blots them out so that they would not be seen. So when the documents are brought up and to say, uh, is this person allowed in heaven? They look at it and they go, well, can't see what's convicting him can't see what would prevent him it's redacted it's taken away it's gone it's blotted out and here he makes it very clear that this is what happens with us and he says it's nailed to the cross you know what jesus christ isn't still on the cross he's raised from the dead his tomb is empty okay let's keep that in mind If your sins are forgiven, don't go back and play with them at the cross. Go to the empty tomb where the forgiveness is. Go to the empty tomb and find the new life in Jesus Christ. Not the old life of sin. Now, there may be consequences that you have physically. Maybe consequences you have legally. I get that. You're going to have to bear with those. But the main account is with with Jesus Christ, and are they forgiven by him? And in verse 15, it says, Having spoiled principalities and powers, he made uh, a a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. You know what that means? It means he basically beat them. They can't do that. They can't forgive sins. They can't raise themselves from the dead. They have no power. Now look, the devil is powerful, but compared to the power of God, not even close. Not even close. Why is that? Because he's a created being. God is not created. And again, that just blows our mind because we are creatures of time. We have a begin and we have an end. We have an expiration date. Some of us are living past our expiration date. <laughs> but I'll tell you this, we, we very clearly realize that that's where we're limited. They're limited very similarly. You know, the devil has an end and he had a beginning. He has a very fixed end. I'm pretty sure he's not happy about it, but he still thinks he can win. But God has made it very clear he won't. He won't. Next week we'll pick up uh, with the next few verses, but let's go ahead and be dismissed with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, again, I thank you for the time. Thank you again for an opportunity, Lord, to uh, just uh, see your power and your might, and Lord, what you've done for us through salvation. Lord, may we keep that in mind so that we wouldn't be spoiled, but we would keep our mind and our focus after Christ and not after men, and not after things that are vain and uh, deceitful. Thank you again for this time and opportunity. pray you continue to meet with us for the 11 o'clock hour. And this I ask in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.